Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 97. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering our movie and pop culture blind spots. Each episode, one of us gets to choose something. The choosing. The choosing. Usually something like that... Like a Shirley Jackson story, that kind of thing. There's no stoning or lottery or <laughs> casualties. Okay. I mean... Maybe emotional casualties? No. No, these are relatively friendly. This is, this, that's, that's why we feel like In we can cases. record this. Yeah. Okay, you're <laughs> referring to episode about naked again, which yeah. comes up every once in a while. But um, we've worked through that. I, I don't think I've gone back and listened to it, but we should sometimes. Anyway, check it out sometime. <laughs> so We worked through it in four years. <laughs> yes. Um, uh-huh. So, uh, as I said, uh, each time somebody gets to choose something, usually that the other person has never seen a movie, a TV show, um, or other media property, right? Yes. Media properties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why we're I referring it to in commercial terms. A novel. We've never done we've a novel. We've never done a novel. <laughs> we've done an adaptation. We're doing today an adaptation of a play. That's right. But the filmic version. Okay. And so it was Ashley's <laughs> choice. Yes, I chose something. You did. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm going to totally derail you for a second mm. because we never do this, but I just want to check in. Like, yeah. what, how are you doing this week? What's going on in your life as we <laughs> sit down <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon to, <laughs> to record our show? Um, I, I, <laughs> are we doing show announcements? Like people, you know, eight years from now when they catch up on this episode are like, oh, Are you, yeah, like we're going to do a live show or yeah, something? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I'm, I, we're moving. Um, my mom's coming. It's Mother's Day. Um, I'm going to architecture school in Oregon <laughs> in a month and a half. Wait, you mean we have lives outside of uh, talking about movies? No. <laughs> Maybe that's why we need a place to just sit down and talk about movies. Yeah. 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 So anyway, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Um, I guess at some point we might be recording these from across the country from each other. Yeah, we have to figure that out. I'm going to have to find another mic. I don't know if we're going to make it to our grand episode 100 by the time. I don't know. We could just record like four episodes okay. in the next I have time today. We can watch another movie. Yeah, we'll just get them knocked out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do the rest of this. The uh, production management off, <laughs> off, off the off uh, recording. But... Um, yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I think maybe why I wanted to watch this. Um, there's, so I first saw this when I was very young, a long, long time ago. Um, my dad showed it to us. I barely remember it. I mean, like, I probably was like 10, 12, I was probably like, oh, dad's showing us another black and white movie again. Oh my God, I roll. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about it other than the rabbit, you know. Okay, so <laughs> we haven't said what we're doing. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what movie did you choose? I chose Harvey. <laughs> the um, 1950 uh, yeah. movie with Jimmy Stewart as yeah. a man who has a six foot, three and a half inch tall, invisible rabbit companion. Yes, a puka. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other reason is, um, we're, uh, it's no secret, we're, uh, fans of, uh, John and Hank Green, and, um, 
in the Anthropocene Reviewed book that uh, and podcast series that uh, John Green did in the last, sort of in the middle of the pandemic, I guess, um, one of his sort of essays, he talks about Harvey and, and that was the big life advice that he got from one of his um, mentors um, in life. And um, so it just seemed like a good time to go back and revive you know, see what it has to offer, you know, both because of, you know, the connection with my father and, and the sort of like big life changes that are going on and, and everything that's happening <laughs> in the world that, um, like when, when it all gets too much to be too much, you know, watch Harvey and see what it has to, to offer you. So we did that. <laughs> oh, so we watched Harvey as a as a mental health aid during this tough time. Yes, during this tough of, time. Uh, transitions for the family. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so have you, did you say, have you seen this since the time your dad? No, no, I'd only you? seen it How the once. do you think you were? I, I honestly don't know, but I, I fully think I was in that like tween period where you're like, oh my God, my parents are trying to show me stuff, you know. I'm the one who does that now. I know, I know. <laughs> I, have, I, I get to inflict my movies on uh, my kids now. Um, but there's that, like, it must have been where he, like, did a lot of prodding to convince us that we, we should watch it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember much about it other than than the, the rabbit thing was all I really remembered about. It. I didn't remember any of the themes or I knew, I remember James Stewart was in it, but that's, that's all, you know? So. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that that's why we have this show, but somehow I've made it to th- this point in my life, loving movies and classic movies as much as I do and loving James Stewart as much mm-hmm. as I do and never having seen the movie. Yeah. Um, I do. I did have the experience, and I'm just trying to figure out when this would have been, but I saw a play version of it, but it yeah. was like a community theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may have been like like we went on a field trip to see a high school production of it or something when I was in high school. So, interestingly, I was just reading about the... Because you go down rabbit holes, huh? Yeah. Um, that it was a big... Um, especially in the 80s, which of when you would yeah, have been in high school, was a big high school and community theater, like a lot of people were putting it on. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like maybe they, we went to like St. Ignatius high school yeah. as a field trip or something <laughs> and saw like this, it wasn't my school that put yeah. it on, but I, and so all I remember is I remembered the basic thread of yeah. sort of oddball kook who thinks he has an invisible rabbit yeah. friend and people thinking he's nuts. And that's like literally all I remembered. And I don't know, I'd never felt like in a rush to go see, it was never at the top of my list of like (laughs) classic movies to see or Jimmy Stewart movies to see, but I really love him. I would say he's one of my favorite actors from old time Hollywood. You know, I love his work with Hitchcock. I love, we love the Philadelphia story and that, you know, when, when he's in screwball comedies of the time, I guess this would be about a, I think this falls about a year after It's a Wonderful Life, which, mm-hmm. you know, I know it's a cliche, it's a Christmas movie and everything, but I, it's it's a very good movie. I still enjoy it and his performance in it is amazing. Well, I think most of the world enjoys It's a Wonderful Life. It's just me. That... Well, it's become kind of, I mean, it, it become, it's been sort of a cliche for many yeah. decades at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you it's an it's an in thing too. Right? Yeah, you, you, you always see people watching it in Christmas well, movies now. It's referenced on TV. Everybody has different Christmas movies they like. I prefer White Christmas. That's just me, but you know, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've seen that. It's a very it's it's very weird. It's like okay. let's throw a Christmas extravaganza in a barn. So remember that for <laughs> yeah, our <yeah>. Christmas episode <laughs> this year. I have never seen White Christmas. Okay, well we'll think about that. Okay. So then I have to ask you, like, what was it like coming back to this movie, having been primed by John Green's essay and sort of distant memories of watching it with your dad and the family? Like, how did it go? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting because, like, it instantly is clear why, what, actually, it's clear what appealed to my dad about it you know, knowing him. And I don't know if I can articulate that in a way you guys don't know him, you know, and, <laughs> you know, it's he, he died nine years ago. So like, my concept of him is also, you know, <laughs> experiencing the, the, the passing of time, you know, but I, you know, what I what I know and remember about him, like, it makes sense to me why this would have appealed to him and why he felt it was important to show it to us. Um, I just regret that we weren't, um, you know, old enough or experienced enough to understand, like, all that it has to offer, you know, about... Well, what do you think it meant to him? What appealed to your dad? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, but I think that... I mean, like, he had a very unique and interesting path in his life. And I I feel like, and I never got to talk to him about this, but that he had this, like, feeling of otherness from other people hmm. because I've had that my whole life, too. And I think that... That's sort of marching to the beat of a different drum. Yeah, sort of, yeah. You're not doing it the way other people do it or... You're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're unique and I'm not meaning specifically yeah. you although you are unique but um he had this way of like we didn't talk about things directly but he had this way of like sharing things indirectly that that were his experience and like it's it's funny because I communicate the same way and whether that's genetics or probably a combination of both um, my personality and, and all of that, but, um, that by sharing art that you love, um, with people that speaks to you on a personal level, that if other people experiencing that same sort of thing, you can sort of communally experience that. And so I think that, you know, um, Yeah, I just, I just think that, I mean, like, he lived his life very differently being a musician, finding a way to make mm -hmm. that work. You know, it's, it's hard when you're, you feel like you're different, you know, yeah. but he, I mean, like, he thought the world of other people, he thought people were incredible, he thought that, that the art and music and you know, creative things that we bring to this world is the greatest thing that about humanity is, is, is that creative spirit, you know, which mm -hmm. is something that I believe too, you know, so 
you know, he taught me to be optimistic and and I think that this movie says a lot about that particular view of the world, you know, mm-hmm. that that people's differences and their kindness is the best that you can bring to the world, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even if even if you don't understand where that is coming from, that appreciating people's uniqueness is is an important part of of being human, you yeah. know, and and a better way to understand the world, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> While you were saying that I was getting echoes of um that other play and that other film, You Can't Take It With You, which also mm. has Jimmy Stewart as he's marrying into that very eccentric family. Yeah. And they kind of embody that spirit of everybody being their own unique, creative yeah. spirit. Like they take in people, like they just sort of absorb the oddballs mm. and the and the, and the the eccentrics and the creatives in the neighborhood and who they encounter. And they end up moving into the house and living with them. There's a guy who makes the little wind-up toys and... You know the mom who's trying to write plays with the and wait with waiting down the pages with the kitten and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a, some some similar stuff going on there. <laughs> so maybe we need to say a little bit about the the story, the character of Elwood P. Dowd, and and what sort of for anybody who doesn't know um, much about this piece. Yeah. Um, what well, interesting? So it's based on a, a play, um, and James Stewart actually was in the Broadway play adaptation. It played for like four years on Broadway. It was a major hit. Like it was the fifth longest playing uh, play on Broadway. It won a Pulitzer Prize too. Yeah, won a Pulitzer Prize for drama. Um, the director of the initial production is Antoinette, Antoinette Perry, who is the uh, the person for whom the Tonys are named, interestingly oh. enough. Um, I see. Antoinette Perry, yeah. Tony no, Perry. Um, so, um, yeah, she was, you know, elemental. So anyway, it's it was it was a hit before it made it to Hollywood, um, which I think is like a pretty standard way they mm-hmm. got so stuff. It was, it was a play. I think the play came out around 1944. Yeah. It didn't make it to the screen until 1950, and. Um, since then, it's been adapted a bunch as well. Yeah, a bunch of different TV adaptations. There's been uh, another like modern redo, uh, retake, like in the works for like 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, yeah, like it, it um, comes together and falls apart. Spielberg was attached. They um, wanted Tom Hanks to, which I can see that. Tom Hanks is John, is Jimmy Stewart. Also, Jim Carrey and <laughs> Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler were attached mm, at various points. Yeah. Or on the wish list. I don't know if they were ever actually attached to the project. Yeah. So um, we have James Stewart, who, uh, you know, we open on him. He's immediately really nice to a postman <laughs> um, who gives him a letter. And, and then uh, uh, Elwood introduces the postman him- to himself, gives the postman his card, and then introduces the postman to his... Uh, to Harvey. To Harvey, the, his rabbit friend. Um, and the postman runs away, which is the first of many people who their reaction to his uniqueness is to just run away. Now, which do is you a weird... remember, does he mention who, <laughs> does it take a while for him to reveal, to for him to say what Harvey is? Or is it just the fact that... It, he's just talking to someone. The initial encounters, he's talking and referring to somebody No, it's his sister there. that tells us that okay. it's a rabbit. Because I, I, yeah. I think he just is all... So we we also get to see right away 
that um, you know he's opening and closing the door and the gates for Harvey. Yeah. He obviously there's somebody he believes that somebody <laughs> is with him. Yeah, and he's walking, he's going about his day with him. So and then he he goes to the bar. Like they're pretty clear that's where he's going is to Charlie's bar is where he's. It's the the third place that they spend their time. <laughs> um, and then meanwhile, his sister and her daughter, um, who is single and maybe a little old to be single in this time, day and age, I guess. I was getting, quote, old maid vibes yeah. from at so least they're in having, terms of... They're having, like, a social event. They're having, like, a singer come over, and they're having a, a, a brunch it's kind of thing. It's a big society brunch with all yeah. the... With, I think it's a ladies group or yeah. a club or one of those things. The Wednesday... It's like the Wednesday afternoon ladies club or something like that. Um, but they're also trying to get uh, Myrtle May more ma- in, married, into yeah. society and so, married off. Yeah. That kind of thing. So, um... And they're just, like, hoping that uh, Elwood will stay away because he scares all their friends. Which, like, it sounds like he's had this issue for maybe a while. I don't actually... He says uh, it's two it's, or three years, isn't it? It's, he tells uh, it's the story. shortly after the death of his mother. Um, yeah, he tells he was the close story. To. Yeah. Um, so it's been two or three years, but they try to keep their society people separate from Elwood because of his... Eccentricities, whatever. <laughs> that was an eccentric way to say that. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> um, and so they call their friend the judge. Yeah. Judge Gaffney. Uh, is he actually a judge? I mean, like, it seems like he spends all her t- his time doing stuff for this family. I didn't really understand that because he's supposedly a judge, but later they're going to have, he's going to sue on their behalf. So it yeah. sounds like he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer right? and but they're a calling judge. him the judge. I don't I think don't if you're a judge, you can practice as a lawyer, I, but I, I don't, don't know. know. So um, <laughs> it seems like a conflict of interest to me. I feel uh. like he's like their trustee <laughs> or something too. Yeah. Maybe like. Maybe his name is Judge. Like. No, it's Judge, judge Reinhardt. Ga- <laughs> judge Gaffney. Yeah, right. They just call him by first and last name all the time. So Elwood's the one who inherited everything. And yeah. his sister um, Vita and and uh, niece Myrtle May live, came to live with him after. Well, it's interesting because she, is, I assume, was married at some point. But her husband is not around. No, he's yeah. not around anymore. So. I just assumed he was yeah. deceased. I can't remember if they ever say. Yeah. Um, anyway, they call the judge to see if he can entertain Elwood, but the guy he sends to keep Elwood busy um, fails. He, like, yeah. hits his he, head or something yeah, like he that. He slides in a puddle and knocks himself out. It's yeah. very odd. So um, Elwood hears that uh, there's a event going on back at the house, so he heads back and introduces, you know, Harvey to the ladies. All the ladies. Um. Scares them off <laughs> completely. And again, their reaction is to run away. Like... <laughs> because they think he's insane. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. But, I mean, like, he's not hurting anyone. And they're no, like... but he's introducing everybody to his invisible I friend. I don't know, maybe it's because I work in a library and we have a lot of, like, interesting folks around. Like... Unless they're actively doing something, then you just, like, give them a little side eye and then go about your business, you know. (laughs) I don't just run away. (laughs) 
Do uh, many of your patrons have invisible companions? No, I mean, not not that you're, I know you're of. You're like, only a few. <laughs> it doesn't happen that often. I mean, none that they've introduced to me, at least. Right. So, um... <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of a Looney Tunes cartoon style. Like, he's nuts and everybody, like, runs and has to make excuses. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And then, so, I guess, after the sort of horrendous brunch party that they had, um, where Elwood sort of sent everyone packing... Um, she decides it's like, this is the last straw. I have to have him committed. Yeah. So, which like, ha ha ha, I'm going to have my, my brother committed to a sanatorium. Yeah. Um, (laughs) ha ha ha. (laughs) And so she takes Elwood in the car. It seems like it's the same day, isn't it? Like. Yeah, I think so. They drive over there, and um, she, like, goes in to talk to the doctor, and the doctor is, like, he's, Dr. Sanderson is the, is the, the psychologist who, who talks to people, and then they have the guy who owns the place, Dr. Chumley, he doesn't talk to anyone. Dr. Chumley doesn't see anybody. No. <laughs> the attending psychologist is the one. And Dr. Sanderson is kind of a dick, like, right off the bat. <laughs> not kind of a dick he is he is a giant well you have crazy sitcom <laughs> stuff going on here yeah. because um his assistant miss what's her name kelly miss kelly the nurse on staff gets the he hears that elwood is the one who's supposed to be committed yeah. and has wilson take him off upstairs, upstairs to to be you know, to be put away yeah <laughs> locked in well, a room okay, so, like first of all this is disturbing like that the nurse can just be like okay we'll take your person right don't know anything about him no don't know the circumstances don't know if but this is yeah i looked at you because it was like they didn't call ahead it was no. like a walk-in like, like a walk-in <laughs> sanitarium where you just walk in with your troubled relative hey this person's crazy okay we'll we take to, him we need to leave him here <laughs> um so the nurse just like writes down some stuff and sends him upstairs. In the meantime, the doctor finally comes out, I guess, and he he's gonna meet with Vera. He didn't realize that Vita. Vita. He's he didn't realize they'd already taken him upstairs. So he like brings her into his office and like she starts telling him what's the problem is, is that he's seeing this giant rabbit and like she confesses to him that like that he makes it so believable that she thinks that she sees the rabbit too and so like within within like two minutes dr sanderson's like okay well this lady needs to be you know here as well or no instead instead yeah so he you know has the orderly this like mob guy orderly guy come and like grab her and 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 put her in a, a padded cell essentially mm-hmm. after a two minute conversation. <laughs> and then he's terrified that there's that 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 about the fact that Miss Kelly's already locked away Elwood. Yeah. Because he thinks Elwood was bringing in his sister to yeah. be committed, and now he's worried about lawsuits, and he has to tell Doctor Chumley, who the you know <laughs> the so, owner of the establishment. I mean. It's interesting to me because, like, my knowledge of what happened with, like, mid-century, you know, institutions like this is that it was, like, especially for wealthy families, really easy for you to just commit someone Mm -hmm. in your family, you know, 
with like very little questioning and they did all sorts of questionable things to people in these institutions, you know, under the guise of, and I think there were actually around this time, a lot of movies made about it, like shot corridors about this, where like you have a journalist who's like breaking into an asylum in order to, you know, bust open and then he gets committed and they won't let him out. And, you know, and he was just pretending to be a patient the whole time. And then there's like, I guess one flew over the cuckoo's nest covers some of this sort of thing, the mm-hmm. mistreatment at, at asylums and, and, you know, but it, yeah, I think it was pretty easy for, for people in high society just to decide that this person is, you know, a problem and decide that it's a mental health thing and just lock them away. And like, I think it was that easy back then, you know. So, based upon a two-minute conversation <laughs> and a misunderstanding, yeah. this woman who has, who first of all is coming to immediately commit her brother, yeah. is mistaken as the insane person, carried off by the orderly, locked up in a padded cell, undressed mm-hmm. against her will yeah. to be bathed. And I looked at you and I was like, <laughs> I know this is supposed to be a comedy, but this yeah. is kind of chilling. This yeah. is like freaking me out a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting because like like you know, how the experience changes because of all the mistreatment in that like time period from like the 30s through the 50s where we had the like advancement of psychology to where I mean, like it was a little bit better than a pseudoscience, but not much better by that point, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like if you're still following Freud's teachings, it's probably not a good idea, you know. Um, we moved past that, um, but there were a lot of laws put in place, I believe, in the you know in the seventies um, to prevent this sort of sort of misuse of the. And then, of course, we learned a lot of things, like you know, maybe you know, just immediately shocking someone is not a good solution for everybody's problem. Maybe, you know. <laughs> well. <laughs> what they, what they knew is that the electroshocks would stop the psychosis. Yeah. They didn't know the long-term damage it was no. doing. No, well, they, I mean, that's the thing is like, oh, this works. We're just going to do They're it. They're not but, having delusions yeah. anymore. However, we have well, damaged their I, brain. I mean, that's, that's why it was a pseudoscience because they weren't actually doing, I mean, they were like, oh, we'll try this. Right. It kind of works. Yeah. So we're going to keep doing Blood it. Bloodletting. Yeah. Maybe that kind of yeah. works I mean, too. essentially, I that's, that's I mean, what it was, you know, so... Um, anyway, (laughs) um, there's some really great, um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, podcasts about the effects of like lobotomies and and stuff like that, that I've listened to that, um, uh, anyway, it's, it's disturbing to think of how he's, and this is supposed to be a light comedy. (laughs) I was just going to say. Nothing that we have described so far <laughs> makes it sound like a comedy to anybody who may yeah. not be familiar with Harmony. So, like, we're not we're not capturing the intended tone yeah. of, of the movie. So, I mean, at this point, it's kind of like a farce. Like, there's this crazy, you know, crazy orderly that's like hauling people around and any standard sitcom yeah. with the misunderstandings yeah. and the, you know, he said this and she said it's that. It's hard to laugh at that, knowing how much is at stake here, though. You know, like people's yeah. lives, whole lives can be changed by, you know, involuntary commitments. So. so, lest you worry, they do sort out the the problem with Vita. Yeah. And she, she gets out and she's just completely freaked out and like that this happened and she wants 
to ruin the place yeah. and, and sue and have Judge Gaffney. Which like, is like, I mean, like, rarely are, are people justified for their screaming about suing people, but yeah. she was very justified. She yeah. should sue those people. So in, in all of that, <laughs> they've already let Elwood go because yeah. they think he's fine. So they let him wander off yeah. on, onto the grounds and he ends up chit-chatting with the uh, guy who runs the, the gate gates. and gets out. Yeah. Right? After meeting uh, Dr. Chumley's wife and uh, having a strange conversation with her. Well, and so Elwood invites everybody over for dinner. Like, yeah. tomorrow, he's he's having everyone over for dinner. Like, the guy at the bar, the homeless dude at the bar. Or, no, he's, he's not homeless. He's... Yeah. He's a former... No, he's a, a he's former an ex-con. con. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but I just, I just want to say that Dr. Sanderson is, like, probably the most disturbing character in this whole show. So, like, our first experience with him is that he, like, berates his nurse for doing her job. I mean, like, she literally did everything that she was supposed to do. And he berates her right off the bat. And then he blames her for, you know, taking in the guy that she was supposed to take in based Mm -hmm. on the request of, which, you know, is questionable, but... So he's like this awful, like, he's really mean to Miss Kelly. He's condescending and <laughs> verbally abusive and yeah. throws his authority around. And it's super disturbing because she has an obvious crush on him. Yeah, it's very And weird. she's trying to, like, always, like, get his attention mm-hmm. and and um, sort of try to flirt. Yeah. While also tr- trying to defend herself when through these misunderstandings. Yeah, that that's one, one of the most disturbing elements is how <laughs> is the romantic comedy aspect of how the movie wants various pairs of these people to end up together. Yeah. Because I mean, spoilers, uh somehow they do end up together. Yeah. And somehow the I mean, Wilson the crazy like mob <laughs> gangster thug <laughs> orderly ends up with Myrtle May. Yeah. Like so, there's these odd pairings like that. These well, weird... Myrtle May is kind of terrible too. She's not very understanding of her uncle and his experiences. Yeah, but the movies kind of presents a face value. Yeah. Look, they all got, they all get to be together. She doesn't yeah. have to be an old maid anymore. She's with Wilson. Yeah, Wilson's terrible. Myrtle he May is terrible. Kind of he also odd. has terrible taste in sandwiches. Um, but the the. <laughs> The rest of the film is the realization that, holy crap, we let Elwood out, Elwood out now we got to get him back. So yeah. this is another scary thing to me, that a private uh, mental facility or sanitarium can just send like their orderly out into the world to go grab somebody yeah. and bring them back 24-7, you know, just walk into a bar or whatever. That's presumably what they're going to do, is no. just go find him and bring him back. It reminds me of those like predatory towing companies that just come and tow yeah. random cars, and right. then like there's nothing you can do because yeah. they have your car. They you have know? to repossess Elwood. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's Repo Man with uh, Elwood with and, Elwood. and an invisible uh, rabbit Puka. But I mean, like the thing is, is like despite his, you know, whatever this is, I mean, like there's some implications that it's like you know complex grief maybe that's causing his. So they even talk about Delusion. trauma, like yeah. trauma having started it. Um, there's there's some suggestions that maybe he's an alcoholic and that, you know, he's having alcohol-induced delusions, you know. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, the joke at yeah. the time was seeing pink elephants, right? Yeah, so yeah. he sees a giant white rabbit. Yeah, but it's then... The, the DTs. 
the movie does kind of like towards the end, especially make it seem like maybe that that Harvey is real, which I actually I think they just did because it would be a little bit too uncomfortable of a film for audiences in 1950 to actually deal with with, you know, complex mental illness or you know, alcoholism, that that in order to make it a fun, frothy movie, we're just going to make it like, oh, maybe the rabbit is real. But I think it's a more interesting film if you just assume that, you know, he's not. I mean, he's real in the sense that that he becomes a presence because Elwood believes in him and and makes space for him in the world. But, and, and to an extent, Vita does as well. You know, it's you know, he lives with her. They live together in the house, you know, so I don't know. To me, it's it's more interesting. I understand, like, with the magic of Hollywood, they can make the doors open and close and, you know. Yeah, that super bothered me, yeah. actually, because I didn't know a lot about the movie, but I had always thought and assumed that he is delusional and he does yeah. believe that he sees a rabbit and that there's no way and that the, that we're not <laughs> supposed to believe that Harvey yeah. is real, that this is just, he's, he's a, he's an offbeat benevolent crackpot yeah. who has this thing, yeah. you know, where he has a, a friendly imaginary presence and is like, like a child with an imaginary friend, yeah. you know, somebody you need because you need something to buffer the world. And I think that's some of what comes out in the John Green essay, probably. Yeah. Is, um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, last, the last few scenes of the movie start to have us witness doors open and close as, as if um, yeah. Harvey's coming in. So I was thinking about that again because that bothered me because then I went away. We watched this last night yeah. and I went away a little bit kind of like, I don't know whether Harvey's real or imaginary or what the movie believes or what I'm supposed to believe yeah. that kind of upset me a little bit I yeah. was because I like I, I don't know I, I mean suspect, I'm comfortable well the, the play wouldn't have had any of that they wouldn't yeah. the so the play and like honestly you know a Broadway audience is going to be a little more open to these kind of themes I mean that's what plays largely okay. are about yeah. or about mental illness and human struggle and that's what plays are largely <laughs> generally speaking let's see Tennessee Williams yes, yes. Arthur Miller yes, yes. <laughs> Hamlet, yeah. Especially in that time period. Right. They were really exploring, you know, the effects of, of trauma and generational trauma and, and all of that stuff, which, I mean, like, is important stuff, but, like, Hollywood was not in that mindset. We weren't exploring serious issues in that way, you know, so. So I want to circle around the block back to the question of Har whether Harvey is real or not or what they're doing with the doors opening and closing yeah. by talking about the what the transformation that happens with Dr. Chumley yeah. during the, the last act of the movie. Because I think that's part of our reading of what's going on with portraying Harvey. So, I mean, my guess is that, I mean, like, they, get, they go drinking together. So they spend all afternoon drinking together. <laughs> well, okay, to, to set that up, Dr. Chumley is trying to find yeah. Elwood to bring him back. Yeah. And what ends up happening, what I actually love, and that is actually really funny, is that the movie cuts forward four hours, and they're like, we don't know, he went off to look for Elwood, he found him in the bar, and now he disappeared, yeah. nobody knows where he is. And Elwood's like, yeah, Harvey went off with him. Yeah. 
So I like that that elision in time, that yeah. gap where you, you're like, he went off to find him and and, the, and he's super stressed. He's going to yeah. be sued. He has to bring this patient back. He has to right the wrongs. And then it's like, nobody knows what happened to Dr. Chumley. <laughs> so what so happened they, to Dr. Chumley? I mean, they, they spent the afternoon drinking and somehow, I, I mean, like, what isn't clear is if if the drinking caused the doctor to have delusions or just the pleasantness of Elwood's personality and made the doctor realize that there was no harm in his, you know, delusion that it actually was making him a more pleasant person, you know, that, that it was making him spread joy and light and laughter in the world instead of, you know, I don't know what I don't know. We don't know what he was doing before. We know that he was smart. That's that's the thing they said about him, that he was clever, that he could have done anything, that he was more career minded, perhaps before. But now he's very interested in people and um, enjoying the life that he has and meeting people and and and, you know, sharing things with people. And so, I mean, like I could see the doctor being like, oh, you know, this isn't so bad, and maybe this is a mindset that I could adopt, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that's almost too rational, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we rejoin the doctor, yeah. he believes that Harvey came home with that's him. That's true, yeah. He believes that Harvey is real. He says, now I understand that Harvey's real. Yeah. And to the fact where, I guess Elwood ends up going back to Dr. Chumley's house, or, uh, is it, to or, the, or is it back to the sanitarium? The rest home, yeah. So he ends up going back there, and they have that conversation mm-hmm. in Dr. Chumley's office, a private conversation. He wants to talk to you. Harvey's in there, by the way, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's where they have that conversation where he talks more about what Harvey is and yeah. when he started to see, when he saw him for the first time, yeah. and um, how he's a puka. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, some of that comes started to come out earlier. And um, Harvey's his favorite name. Harvey's his favorite name. And and then he, like, more of the lore of Harvey is yeah. that, oh, yes, Harvey doesn't exist in normal time and space, and he can stop he can stop time and space for you and, and provide you with the moment that you want to exist in and then bring you back as if no time has come at all. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like Doctor <laughs> Who or something. Harvey's got a TARDIS. Um, <laughs> but it was really interesting. And so... Then this becomes a, a, a an impetus for Doctor Chumley to, to to like get very nostalgic and remember this moment of perfect happiness that he had back in Akron years before. He want and if he could exist in any place and time, he would want to. What was it? Live, be in a under a tree with a with a woman, not a specific woman, with a woman who's pretty and attentive and mm-hmm. sitting in the sun on the on that day. And the, she just he just wants her to hold his hand and say, "Poor dear," right? As he explains things, and like I love that Elwood was like, "Are you sure that's all you want her to do?" Yeah, right. Because he says because he says for a week or something. Yeah, right? for like two weeks. For, I think. for six days or for two weeks, and he says. <laughs> Are you sure that's all you want to happen? That's a good time? question to me. Like, yeah, just want well, a, fa- the same a faceless woman to sit there and say "poor dear" to you for two weeks. <laughs> so, I mean, he's he's literally kind of well. He's basically comes to the point of pleading with Elwood to let Harvey stay with yeah. him. And could you, you know, I need him more than you do now. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Has the doctor snapped? Has is I mean he could still be drunk. They drank all afternoon, so okay. 
So I feel like we need to talk more about Elwood, his his character, his personality, whether he's crazy or not. How much is the alcohol? I mean, I know these are literal questions that yeah. we don't need to answer, but that we can have thoughts about. Well, I mean, if you look at, the, I mean, like the practical, like if if we're going to go with this, like from what we understand about psychology, which is granted a little bit more than they did at the time. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's probably a coping mechanism for trauma, you know. So the death of his mom, who they stated he was very close with, always very close with since he was younger, um, that this is a, a friend that, you know, helps him. But it also, like, changed his perspective. And, like, the thing is, is, like, that is very... Um, I understand that, that, that grief, grief is a transformative thing, especially a loss like that. Yeah. Is very transformative. And, like, how you are before you experience a giant loss in your life and how you are afterward is different, you know? And, like, you would hope... I mean, like, I remember when my dad died, it made me much more empathetic as a person than I was before. I'm a much better person than I was before because I understand that pain of loss better than I did before, you know? So I, I can see how that, that moment that that grief could, you know, change you from one perspective to another. That makes sense to me, you know? So... I feel like the movie is very clearly like the the theme of the movie yeah. or the argument of the movie is is Elvis is Elvis is Elwood crazy or is Elwood look, look at the way he lives his life yeah and who he is now is yeah he hangs around in bars but he, and yes he drinks a, a certain amount but he never appears to be drunk no he never does and so you think you start to think of him as he's going to bars for the social experience, yeah. kind of like going to the cheers bar, the yeah. place where everybody knows your name. Right. <laughs> and what he likes is meeting people and talking to people, hearing about their hopes and dreams, validating them, um, making new friends, um, living entirely in the present, being yeah. completely open-minded and trustworthy and loyal and generous he will buy you a drink he will invite you to dinner it's all about like it's like his entire worldview with harvey by his side has become um being open and genuine and authentic and treating mm -hmm. people at face value never judging anybody yeah. being willing to to make any sacrifice for a friend being willing to see each stranger that walks through the door as your new friend yeah and um and so the movie obviously, ex, you know, praises this, values yeah. this, wants us to value this. And so when you see that, that not only is he harmless, but yeah. he is a good person, yeah. then you have to look at the other people in the play or in the movie and see them as being neurotic and striving and yeah. concerned with superficial things like their social status yeah. or the absurdity of this hospital hospital with the thug and the verbally abusive doctor <laughs> yeah. and the and the, the the guy who runs the establishment disinterested, who, who's yeah. completely disinterested <laughs> reading magazines yeah. in his office or something yeah. um i don't know sorry for the long monologue but <laughs> but the movie <laughs> 
like we're supposed to be on Elwood's side. We're supposed yeah. to believe that, you know, so I think it's almost like, so what that he sees an invisible yeah. <laughs> rabbit? Does it matter if it's real or not real? If he is this good person with his outlook? Well, it's interesting. The thing that, that sort of like the big, I guess, catharsis of the film comes when they're, you know, Dr. Chumley is like, okay, Dr. Sanderson, take over the treatment for Elwood. And so um, Dr. Sanderson has a injection that's going to fix his psychosis, I guess. It's Formula 977. Yes. <laughs> Love potion number nine. Um, <laughs> which is a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> it's probably a better song than a movie. All the Sandra Bullock's in it. Um, so it's this magic you know, tonic or, or injectable thing that's going to fix his psychosis. It's an antipsychotic, basically. Yeah, essentially. I mean, and so they're about to, they take him in, they're going to give him the injection. And in the meantime, the cabbie, who has been patiently waiting outside um, for a very long time, comes in and he's like, can you pay me? I, I need to go. And like, nobody can find their wallet. Um, so they have to like interrupt the the injection so Elwood can go pay the cabbie and he gives the cabbie like a giant tip, you know, mm -hmm. just because he's such a nice guy. He's like, here, you know, take this, you know, enjoy the rest of your evening, you know, that kind of thing. And like, he goes back in and the cabbie says to Vita, you know, you know, most people, you know, don't tip me. They make me wait forever. You know, I, you know, I, I have a family at home and, you know, most people are jerks, you know. He's, he says, I'm glad you got him before they gave him the Formula 977 yeah. because they never tip you after the yeah, Formula 977. Yeah. They're not the same when they come out. Yeah. They're, if you want them now like this, you got to get them before the Formula yeah. 977. Yeah, so she realizes that she would rather have her brother as as he is as this nice caring guy than than being a normal schmuck. normal schmuck who doesn't care about other people and yeah. so she stops him and um that i mean like it's funny that that is a surprisingly emotional moment is this yeah. like realization that that it's more important for her to have a brother who's who's cares about her and is interested in other people than you know you know, I don't know how Myrtle May feels about it. She's always kind of. <laughs> well, I don't think she'll mind anymore because yeah. she's got she, Wilson. She's found Wilson. Yeah. He's a, a real prize. Congratulations, real prize. Myrtle May. <laughs> Wilson, always on the prowl with a leather strap ready to yeah. uh, bustle anybody away. And then poor, poor Miss Kelly ends up with Dr. Sanderson, which is like, I, I don't think she deserved that. <laughs> yeah, I literally I wrote that in my notes. He de he doesn't deserve her. No, no, she's women. In, yeah. Women in four, in fifties movies don't fall in love with the only man that you're with. I don't, I, I guess if I was going to empathize with Myrtle, I would be that you know people were less accepting. I mean, it's still sort of a taboo, but we're getting more and more accepting of people's mental illness you know, that it impacts all of us at one point or another that, you know, that it's normal to seek help and to, you know, take, you know, medications and all of that stuff. I mean, like, like there's shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where they talk about that. I mean, that's the whole point of the whole show is, you know, someone coming to terms with their, 
your their mental health and and learning to to you know live their life and treat it and and treat people with respect you know it's and I don't know so well another thing that crazy ex-girlfriend does so well <laughs> is normalizing yeah mental health issues because she's so excited to get her diagnosis yeah. and you've, you've got that great musical number <laughs> where everybody's got a weird medication yeah. that they're on and they kind of sing all about yeah. the, the stuff that they're on <laughs> she's just one of the crowd we're well, all on something well the other th- other thing that it does is it normalizes that it's a process that like there is not an easy injection there's not a formula 979 that like every day you're living with it and that that you know it's a struggle, but, you know, it's a struggle worth doing because there are people that care about you and, and you care about them. And I don't know, it's, that's like, if I think you can draw a line from Harvey to crazy ex-girlfriend. And I mm-hmm. think like more people should should watch that show if they haven't seen it, because I mm-hmm. think it just does a really good job of representing a mental health story, not everybody's mental health story, but just that, that that they're anyway (laughs) but i mean like it is kind of monumental for the time period that like the message of this story is that that you know he's he's a little weird okay he may have you know a little bit of a psychosis going on but you know he's making the world a better place despite that you know his his difference his way of looking at the world is making the world better you know it's contributing to and he has a crutch. Yeah. He has a coping mechanism. Yeah. And so what? How does it really harm you yeah. in the end? Yeah. So, um, oh, I wanted to come back to Dr. Chumley because <laughs> I think if you if you look at what the movie's doing with doors starting to open close yeah. and stuff like that, it's from the point of view of Dr. Chumley. It's when yeah. you will come back to That's the, true. to the sanitarium with him coming into the house and the door opening again after him and closing after him. And I think it's just, on the one hand, meant to depict his acceptance and now belief in Harvey. Yeah. But also, I think it's supposed to do that to the audience because now we're supposed to have an open mind about Harvey at that yeah. point. So I think it wants us to question. I mean, I think it wants us to question. Yeah. And and be open to believing that, huh, maybe Harvey is, maybe Harvey's real. Maybe there yeah. is a benevolent uh, fairy spirit puka <laughs> uh, following James Stewart and Dr. Chumley around. Yeah. Um, so that's the way the movie can do that is by starting to, you know, pull a little trickery in terms of the door opening or closing or the wallet going back into um, Vita's purse. Yeah. Because after that whole thing happens where she stops the presses and gets him to not take the formula, the injection because she can't find her money. Yeah. Well, the, the coin purse appears in again afterwards and they make a reference, I think to Harvey put it back. Yeah. And Harvey's the one who engineered that. So you've got these sorts of weird ambiguities playing out, Yeah. but I don't think it's supposed to be a literal <laughs> fantasy film. Yeah, yeah. But I think that that's more a way of of conveying what the characters are going through. Mm-hmm. And not not showing us. You are omnisciently seeing what's what's playing out in this world. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think if 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 you were living with someone who had a long-term delusion that it, I mean like even if you know, that that delusion is not real for you. 
living with that experience makes it real for you because, you know. Put yourself in Vita's position. Yeah, yeah. They're not arguing about Harvey every time he comes up. That would be exhausting, right? By now, three years down the line or whatever, they're used to the fact that they probably have to set an extra place at the table. He's always moving, pulling chairs in and out and talking about him. And so, of course, they're going to start referring to Harvey and and acting as if Harvey is there too. Well, I mean, and and in a way, that isn't any different than like a parent that has a, you know, four-year-old that has an imaginary friend. And, you know, rather than deal with the tantrums that go along with you know not taking in them them into account you start taking them into account you know yeah. but i i don't know but yeah for for vita it is more real you know i don't know how their family is going to work now that wilson is wilson going to live with them yeah is wilson really long term uh, and like vita has some sort of like material? trauma because he like forcibly tried to undress her he tried to remove her corset you know? No, he undressed her and put yeah. her in a bathtub. Yeah. He undressed. That was disturbing. So, I mean, like, that that just seems like fr- family dynamics would not go well. Like, I'd much rather live with Elwood than with the the guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's 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 hard to um, reconcile some of those, and I think that it, maybe it was just a mer- mistake with the characterization. Like Doctor Sanderson could have been like a know-it-all dick without you know yelling at Nurse Kelly and I you know I honestly <laughs> think it's us living now in this day and age yeah. seeing that he's an asshole because yeah. I think that it would be more accepted in 1950. Oh, of course you're condescending to the nurse who works for you. I mean, that's how we treat women. Well, I mean, I I I, I, I suspect based on, you know, some things that I've read that that in many cases in some some hospitals there's still doctors that act that way towards their nurses. Yeah, I don't know? think it would st- what I'm saying is I don't think to the audience of the time that dynamic would stand out the way it does to us that's now true. as being that's inappropriate and a, a horrible power dynamic. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of portrayals in movies where like people behave in ways that like just being i mean they're your colleagues it's not like i mean i guess if you're working in a hospital it is life or death but like it doesn't help anyone for you to be a dick to your colleagues you know you know (laughs) it's not that hard to be nice to people jesus yeah and she was doing her job, you know, just because he didn't understand what was going on, you know, which is like you just come in in the middle of everything and don't take the time well, to find out. He, he can't make mistakes. Remember, the yeah. hospi- Ch- Dr. Chumley's hospital does not make mistakes. We yeah. don't tolerate mistakes. I forget how he phrased it, but it was to the effect that there are no mistakes here. Anyway, yeah, it's... It's interesting how much power, like, the rise of, you know, like, careers like that, you know, you know, there's a whole, like, history of how, like, uh, professions got legitimized and, like, doctors became, instead of just, like, people who were randomly trained Mm -hmm. in, I don't know what kind of way, this sort of, like, standardization of the process, what it takes, what the education required to become a doctor, which is a good thing, but it also, early on in the process, 
it created people who thought they knew more than they actually did. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the human body is still very much a mystery to us, even after, you know, 300 years of, of science. It's still pretty much a mystery. Um, what we know now is so much more than they knew then. But, like, it established these people who were experts when we just didn't have a very good understanding of the human body and how it worked anyway. And so then they're making decisions that are going to affect people's health you know, with essentially not being checked by anyone, you know, just completely like I'm all powerful. I am doctor. I can, you know, I can do these things, mm-hmm. um, which caused a lot of harm, you know, so. And I, I think particularly in the field of psychology in our, in our country, probably other countries as well, but especially in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, Yeah. So Jimmy Stewart, casting as Elwood P. Dowd, what do you think? I think he was good. I think he was... I don't think there's very many people who could pull off that particular sort of innocent... Eccentric, friendly... Yeah. <laughs> kind. Non-threatening, you know. Yeah. Kind of... I mean, that's kind of what he made his career on, you know. Except that, for Vertigo. Vertigo, where he's forcing that poor woman to... Well, yeah, I guess there's that... To be someone she's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's some disturbing stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And one of his best roles. But yeah, the rest of the time, it's good old Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I don't think you could put Spencer Tracy in the same role or anything like that. So he was nominated for um, Best Actor, but it was actually Vita, Josephine Hull, mm. who won Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars and the Golden Globe. Um, she she also originated a... the play. So oh, she, she was did? The, she, was she played the, that part. She in was the... Vita in the play yeah. as well. So She's fantastic. What, which is interesting. Like, I figured that because she seemed a little old for the, for the mm. role you know, um, yeah, well, it would originally have been like six years earlier, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's fine. It's just like, I guess, you know, in the in this story that uh, that her brother was much younger than her because she looked like she was in her maybe. Well, you have that weird thing in old movies yeah. where you where there are parents who are always like really way too old for the kids they have. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Where you have these like parents in their 50s with and their like seven year old child or whatever. I mean, and this is no judgment to anybody out there, but I mean, it seems more normal in old movies that some of the parents are just, which well, is odd because I thought most people had most young people kids. would marry young yeah. in their early twenties yeah. back then and 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 have kids. Well, early. also, I mean, there's not as much birth control, so you could, in theory, be having children until your, you know, yeah. menses stop, which is scary, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was watching a Twilight Zone the other day where the the couple, like, they're they're in they're older than me, I think, yeah. and they have they had a small child, and I was like, this is odd casting. Yeah. Well, I also think that like if you go back, so in the nineteen fifties when this came out, like, I mean, like, par- the the parents would have been born in like the eighteen sixties yeah. or something like that. So that's like a whole different generation. Like 1950 is approaching. I mean, it is sort of the middle of the like modernist movement, which started in the 30s. But like, 
So you do have this like wide, vast variety of style differences too, you know, in hairstyles and clothing, you know, you know, people born in the 1860s, I mean, like, they were like high, that's like high Victorian, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff. So their clothing sensibility is entirely different than people who were born like after 1920, you know, and like, like you could tell, like, especially in this, like the older women were wearing these like sort of very Victorian looking outfits Mm -hmm. and like hats and, and stuff like that. And then the younger people were wearing the sort of like, um, Myrtle May was wearing like a Dior style with the like tight waist and mm-hmm. and big skirt and and he's wearing like a 1950s style um sort of loose suit, mm-hmm. you know, kind of um with the, not quite as big shoulders as you yeah. would get, but it's it's interesting style time because like there would very much be people who were still dressing like it was the turn of the century, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because that's what they it's so it's very interesting, you know, that hadn't even picked up on the, you know, flapper, shorter hemlines kind of thing. That would have been very scandalous. I think this is somewhere in the Midwest, you know, so um it's very it's very interesting. And and like the house that it's set in is an old Victorian house. Old Victorian ha- house, yeah. Like a gothic style um Victorian. So it's 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 an interesting time in, in the world because like I feel like in the time that we've grown up, like the way that fashion, it's not that different. Like starting, like starting when jeans started being a major thing, Mm -hmm. like everything got a lot more casual. There's a lot of like influence that like, you know, sometimes we'll have like a 70s style influence on clothing or a 60s style influence on clothing, but it's all very, there's not like a defining style. Usually there's like a few trends that are obvious, but like a parent is going to dress pretty similar to a child, you know, regardless of their age difference, just because our styles aren't that different Mm -hmm. anymore. You know, there's not this massive like sea change of what people are wearing, you know, until the, you know, whatever magnetic suits come or whatever. When we get our metal. Kai and I pretty much dress the same. Yeah. We we share the, we share Degrassi (laughs) t-shirt that we take turns wearing. (laughs) So I, I, it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting because like there was that sort of like style difference from that time period. And it's, it's pretty clear, like the difference between young and old people based on the, the clothing that they're wearing, which I don't feel we get as much anymore, but I don't know. I want to say the, um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping track a little bit, but going back to what we're talking about, the alcohol aspect of it. Yeah. That I had to wrestle with a little bit before I talked myself into that he's more about the social experience of going to bars because essentially what we're given is that Elwood leaves the house every day and hangs out in bars all day. Yeah. So it sounds like he's an alcoholic. Yeah. And it sounds like the movie condones that or, I mean, it. there is this, like, is he seeing the rabbit because he's supposed to be that far gone? You know, yeah. what, what, is it, is it this issue that alcohol's not as big a deal in, in old movies, you know, yeah. it's kept, like there's this thing where drinking a lot and drunkenness and stuff is kind of played as funny or in, yeah. in movies of the time. I don't know. It's really hard to figure that out. Cause I would feel better if he wasn't hanging out in bars and there was the, the drinking aspect yeah. to it because I think that muddies it a little bit. It, it, it kind of takes something away from it. Maybe they're trying to 
give that to us as a as a, a just to have another possible explanation for Harvey other than him being you know somewhat delusional because he needs something to believe in but it doesn't totally sit well with me that that um you know we're validating and and uh presenting this character as as this wonderful good person who does have this issue of hanging out in bars all day Boy, I don't even know how to approach that because, like, Americans, our view of alcohol is just so skewed. It's just completely, it's completely nonsense from, like, soup to nuts. We don't have a, like, like many things, we just don't have a very, we have a very puritanical way of looking at alcohol and alcohol use. And then we, like, refuse to see alcoholism as a mental illness, as an addiction problem, not Mm -hmm. as... A, fu- a character failing. Of, yeah. You know, and so like... Well, when was it more recognized as that, historically, as an addiction? I don't I don't know. I mean, because it seems like, to me, it depends on the character, how they're viewing their particular thing. So, like, I don't care if people hang out in bars. I really don't. I don't, you know... We don't want people to injure themselves by drinking to excess, you know. I, I don't know. It's just so He's weird not. to back. I mean, like where I grew up, you know, it's completely dry. You couldn't buy alcohol right. in my town. Right. You, had to drive you know, to the it's it's because of the Baptist county line. Yeah, you couldn't. You could now. Now it's it's a wet. So we're in a like alcohol positive time now because in the nineties there was this whole like if you drink two glasses of wine, it's supposed to be good for your heart or something like that. Well, now they're coming. They're coming back on that. Apparently, it's not. <laughs> But we keep, like, seesawing around this and, like, instead of actually focusing on developing a healthy, you know, sense of moderation with all things, like, America, it's, like, it's either all or nothing, like, you know, we're all in on drinking wine or it's it's terrible and everybody should be sober and no one should drink at all. Right. You know, that's, like, our weird relationship with alcohol in this country and anything, really, like, carbs, <laughs> you know. So, I mean... I guess we finally came around on smoking is gen- is genuinely bad. <laughs> but I mean like I don't think that there's any way to tell like Yeah. You know, what is the movie's perspective on? I think some people are judgy of the fact that he spends his time in bars. I think his sister is just happy that he's out of the house, you know. <laughs> well, and Dr. Sanderson or whomever there is a Dr. Chumley. You know, it's Dr. Sanderson immediately starts asking um, Vita when he thinks that she's the ill one, like yeah. how much she drinks and whether yeah. she drinks to excess or whether he, Elwood, drinks to excess. So they immediately seize on that as like a as yeah. part of. Well, I mean, what I'm not going to fault him for that. That's yeah, like yeah. pretty standard, you know, diagnosis kind of thing. Like. <laughs> That is maybe the only thing that was like sort of sort of acceptable, but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to how to how to parse that particular thing. But I, I mean, like just... whether whether it's complex complex grief that's caused this or alcoholism or the combination of the two. Ultimately, I don't think we're given it, options. Yeah, we're it's given, not ma- it doesn't no, matter. It doesn't matter because either way, he has Harvey. Right. You know, is the result of whatever causes it, you know. True. You know. All right. 
Well, <laughs> I think I've talked myself uh, around and about this movie. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts you want to um, get across before we depart? No, I mean, I, th- I think you, you pulled out the uh, moral of it out of me in the, in the beginning, you know. Just that it's important to to celebrate our differences and mm-hmm. and look for ways that it can bring us together rather than letting it separate us and put us in boxes. Yeah, or <laughs> or padded rooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed watching this. I mean, like again for the first time, you know. So it, I'm glad that you remembered it again. Yeah. Because we were having trouble a week or so ago. I was like, there's a movie that you always mention that we need to do on the podcast, and I can never remember what it is. No. And then all of a sudden you remembered what it was. No, well, it's, I've been meaning to to watch it again for a couple of years, and I just hadn't, um, you know, life happens and you, you don't make the time for it. But... Um, well, thanks for introducing me to, yeah. to Harvey. I just... <laughs> Like, I think it's so important, you know, understanding that bad things can happen in the world to to focus on the positive and, you know, make choices that are going to make you and the people around you happy and make the world a better place, you know, because we know that, you know, darkness is coming for us all. Yeah, well, and also... <laughs> Look at all the good. <laughs> look at all the good in Elwood. Yeah. So he sees a rabbit. But yeah. look at what a good person he is. Yeah. I, th- I forget the quote that he he says is like something about um, you can be smart or you can be pleasant. Oh right. And, and, and I'd much rather be pleasant. I chose to be pleasant. I chose to be pleasant. Yeah. So there's a certain awareness. Yeah. He has, yeah. at, at that moment, he's aware that he made a choice <laughs> yeah. at some point yeah. to close the door on this bit of reality. Well, and he also said something about, like, he'd been running from, and he finally let it catch him or something like yeah. that. I don't yeah. know. Anyway. But, yeah. I, he I, actually <laughs> has somewhat more self-awareness about yeah. the whole thing than you realize at first. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I love about him is is that he refuses to argue about it. Like, for him, Harvey exists, and he's not going to talk about it. There's no question about it. Yeah, he's not going to argue with anyone about it. He's not going to get defensive. He just, you know, do you want to come to dinner? You know? (laughs) Which is, I think, a cool thing to do. And I hope, you know, going into this next phase of my life that I can be open to people like that. Because I'm going to need to know people in our, in our new place, you know, yeah. where we are in the world. We're going to need to know people, you know. Um, and I think that it's really easy to close yourself off. And I think that the pandemic made it even easier to do that. Yeah. And, like, I'm worried that if we don't learn to open ourselves back up and, and ask for help and 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 meet people and figure out how weird and strange we all are that that we're that we're missing something the the connection of other humans that is so important for it's the reason why c- c- civilization exists you sounds know sounds like so. we need to find the right bar to hang out at yeah we do yeah. i will find a bar 
We can go to a pub. <laughs> we'll go crawling with uh, whatever his name is. Thor. Crawling, crawling with, with Thor. Thor. Yeah. It's our uh, favorite Eugene, Oregon uh, YouTube. <laughs> all right, folks. That's all we have for you this time. Thanks for listening to Shut Up and Watch This. And uh, as we got to know Harvey, the six foot, uh, three and a half inch tall rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yes. And his imaginary friend, Elwood P. Dowd. Yeah. Should, like somebody should make Harvey, uh, the, the movie from Harvey's point of view. That's right. That would be a different story. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll catch you next time when it will be my choice. Maybe we'll go off and watch something else today. Okay. But uh, you all won't hear that episode for another month. So have a good one. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye.